Well, all right. Well, we're back this morning, August 19th. This is our 36th lesson in our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Again, thanks to Jay for <clears throat> filling in last week. I appreciate him so much. Uh, we're looking, uh, where are we? We've been previously looking, well, we went through Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We started there and all the way through chapter 5, verse 16. And uh, as I continue looking and studying these verses and these passages and the way the book of Matthew is laid out, I've discovered that most commentators, and in particular this Quarles guy in the Sermon on the Mount book that I'm looking at, considers that whole passage from chapter 1, verse 1 up through chapter 5, verse 16 is really an introduction. That whole portion of Scripture there, all those chapters, an introduction to the entire book of Matthew as we've looked at. So that kind of gives us an idea as we just take a minute and look at what we've covered and then look forward where we're going. Because he'll refer to the bulk of what remains up through chapter 7, up to about verse 12 in chapter 7. He refers to that as the body. In other words, this is the real, this is where all this other stuff is pointing to. All right, we have these almost five chapters of introduction, at least according to that breakdown. And then it's kind of challenging as we look at, well, we're, now we're just getting into the body of the work of Matthew, at least regarding his perspective. And I thought it was interesting. It's absolutely overwhelming when you look at this book and you know you want to study it. We want to study it as best we can go slow and try to bring out everything and I can tell you right now it's absolutely impossible absolutely impossible and that excites me because that reminds me just about the veracity of God's word just how all-encompassing it is there's so much there uh, and I dare say when we get through with this in eight or ten years and we go back and look and you'll say oh let's start over okay there's so much if you've been following along and, and looking and doing your own study that that we can't cover. Uh, no, other, no other book in the world like that. No, none other. And here we're just talking about the Gospel of Matthew. Say nothing about the entire Bible. So we're thankful for that. And we're blessed to be able to, be able to do that. So we'll move into this section dealing with the body of this book. We'll look at it, and it's going to focus primarily on, really, as he says, the demand for a superior righteousness. That is to say that there's been a high bar set as we've looked at the Beatitudes and so forth. We've looked at that. And what Christ expects, what God expects, what God has laid in store for us, that is how he has prepared us, how he has provided for us to literally live the Christian life and to be successful, not perfect, mind you, but to be successful is going to be laid out. <clears throat> and it's going to be discussed uh, a lot of times by way of example. In other words, Christ will point to the example, or the, oftentimes the bad example of the Pharisees or whatever. He'll set up these uh, scenarios later, beginning in chapter 13, we start talking in parables. Uh, you know, it'll be uh, either or situations, you know, kind of tit for tat situations where you can compare behaviors and thought processes and so forth to make a point. Because he's come, as he says today, we'll look at, he's come to fulfill the law. He'll tell us, I've not come to change it, I've come to fulfill it. 
and what people have been looking at in his day, what they've been looking at from the perspective of their of the Jews and so forth, uh, the rabbinical rule and teaching of that time had gone way far off the grid. It really had. So obviously Christ as is seen and will be seen and was obviously in the minds of the Jews crucified, you know, because, you know, he didn't believe the law of Moses from their perspective. They considered what he was talking about was contrary to that. And we know that they were motivated in part by their own selfish motivations. But they would build a case against him as best they could, even though he was guilty of nothing, they would build a case against him against, you know, teaching against the law as they saw it. And we'll talk in a minute about what the law really meant to them. When they heard the word, when the word law was used, they thought of something else. So we'll look at that. So it's going to be important for us to kind of hear this, as I often say, the way they heard it, okay, and why they responded like they did. And that'll give us some insight as to why Jesus is speaking to this particular group in the way that he is. So that's where we are. We're back up to Matthew chapter 5, <coughs> beginning with verse 17, where he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now you might think, well, okay, that should do it. Okay, those who are thinking that he's, <laughs> he's come to change all that, we say, well, okay, you're, uh, you're going you're gonna to add more. You're going to do what's really been being done for so long amongst the rabbis. You're just going to add a little more to this, maybe with some level of clarification. But, of course, we know that's not at all what he's talking about. That's not at all what he's talking about. He says, I've not come to abolish it. That word abolish in the Greek is the word, and I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's kataluo, I think is the way, K-A-T-A-L-U-O. And if you look that up, you'll find pretty much the same <laughs> types of descriptors, no matter where you look it up. But it means to utterly overthrow or to completely destroy something, to totally tear it down, to do away with it, to smash it to the ground would be a way that that word would have been used, just to totally obliterate something. In fact, it's the same word that's used over in, later in Matthew, uh, over in the Olivet Discourse in 24 and even up into 26, verse 61, where Christ is talking about the destruction of the temple. It's the same word that he uses there. So he's telling them, he's using this, all, this complete, this all-encompassing term, I've not come to, to tear that down, to destroy it. I'm not coming to something new, not, not in, in terms of doing away with the law. I'm not here for that. I've come to fulfill it. And that is to say that everything that you've been taught and heard that you have missed because you've focused upon the traditions of men, you've focused upon the world, quite frankly, has been telling you about the Word of God. You've missed it. I've come to fulfill the true and valid Word of God. That's what he's saying. And they had confused it. They had really confused it. And we've alluded from time to time in here about the vast number of laws and rules and regulations that uh, the, the Jews, the, the rabbinical community had placed upon the law. We think of the law, we think probably instantly of the law of Moses or whatever. Okay, That's what we think about. Or maybe even the first five books of the Bible. That's not necessarily 
what they're talking about. We'll look at that a little more deeply in just a moment. But Christ here is saying, he says, don't even give it a thought. That's what he's saying. Don't even let it enter into your mind. I, he said, I don't even have a notion about doing away with the law because it's forever settled. It's, it's pinned. It's done. The law of God, obviously, no pun intended, written in stone, literally, right? At least the Ten Commandments are. So he's, not, he's saying in these absolute terms, don't even think that. Now, according to the commentators, that's the message that Christ was putting forth. Get this out of your mind, is what he's saying. I'm not doing that. Because he in no way came to nullify anything in the Word, or the law, or the prophets, he said. Because he was the fulfillment of that. Two different things. And it's important that they see that. If they don't consider the fact that he's part of this, quite frankly, ultimately, that the law and all of it is focused upon the coming of Christ, the preparation for Him. He is literally going to be the fulfillment of all that, as we'll see, in every aspect. And I love the way MacArthur breaks it down when he starts looking at it and comparing it to, like, for instance, the temple sacrifices and all that, how Christ in His person and in His life, and ultimately, of course, in His final sacrifice, served as fulfillment for every bit of that. So, with that in mind, think about what a load that would have been for these people who were thinking, quite frankly, in other terms. You see what I'm saying? This was something. This is something that only the, the power of God, the Spirit of God could do. And that's an important uh, point as well. The Spirit of God still had to move upon these people to change their hearts to change their minds about the law of God right they had to be willing to step away from rabbinical tradition they had to be willing to do that in order to hear and there's only we only have just a few examples in the word of God of leading notable Jewish leadership that did that, right? We've got some veiled references about why we're to say many of the priests came to faith or whatever, but we really only know of what uh, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, um, perhaps others, but people who, who literally, well, you know, Paul was <laughs> singled out and boomed, but for people who listened to the Word of God, okay, examined the Word of God, considered the Word of God. We see evidence of that deep thought. I love the wisdom that was it Gamaliel, I believe it was, that said, hey, we had a guy come in here one time, claimed to be this, that, or the other. Paraphrase. He said, just, just leave him alone. He says, if he's of God, it'll be evident. And if he's not of God, that'll be evident too. And he says, because you don't want to be guilty of God. Really fairly sound wisdom, is it not? That guy was close to being able to hear the truth. And that's where we have to be. That's where we have to be. I had an experience just last night when I was in a, a mixed group and we were sitting around a table and we were sharing where we went to church and so forth. And... Um, this one shared and that one shared and I don't want to call church names or anything. I don't think I'd be wise, but this guy started talking about his church. 
church. I wouldn't go to his church, you know. Uh, Where do you go? I said, oh, we go to Faith Community Church. Oh, okay. Within five minutes, they got up and left. Okay. And that, that, concerned, <laughs> that concerns me because there was such division there in our, in our faith. And when it's supposed to be the same, the person even asked me, we got Southern Baptist, aren't you? I said, yeah, we are. You know, we're in a Southern Baptist affiliate, Reformed Fellowship. Okay, out. So that same kind of thing, you know, remains today. The bottom line and the reason I go there, here's the question. Does anybody in here think they know it all right now about <laughs> the Word of God <laughs> and so forth? No, we're thankful for the Word of God. We're thankful for expository preaching. We're thankful for teaching the Word of God as best we know with every tool that we have, with everything that, that, that's available for us. That's what we want to know. We don't want to put anything on the Word. We want the Word to speak to us because we know some way, somehow, that when we die, that that's going to be important for us to know that we've had our faith and trust in nothing but the Word of God. And we have to be willing to allow ourselves to hear something that might be a little different than what we've been taught by virtue of tradition or family influence or any of those things. Don't we want to be able to say, this is what the Lord God through the Spirit of God and most certainly through the Word of God has impressed upon my heart about this issue, whether it's salvation or the work of the church or whether you pay the preacher or any of these other things that seem to be so important to people. It's what the Word of God says. And I just use that last one as a simple example, okay? So that's where we are. These people were in no different spot. There's always something competing with us to keep the true, the the valid, if you will, the deep Word of God out of our heart. And what I want us to realize this morning and just in this moment is that that will never stop. And it doesn't matter where you are in your life right now, in, in your knowledge of the Word of God, even in your commitment. That will never stop. And I hope that's an excitement for you because the Word of God is fresh and it's challenging and it's providing for us each and every day what we need regardless of that situation. It'll always be there. Well, Christ is trying to open up their minds. He's speaking the truth to them. And a little bit, a little bit of, a, of a word study here. Let me find my place. A little bit of a word study. He, even when he says, as it's recorded, he says, I've not come to destroy the law or the prophets. And it may be an indication because he uses the word or there instead of and. He doesn't say the law and prophets. He says the law or the prophets. Might be an indication that that's what they'd been on him about. That he was always on the law. But now understand this. When they talk about the law in their conversations, they're talking about all rules and regulations and so forth. Now, if they say the law and the prophets, obviously that's a bigger picture. But we understand, and as I've studied from antiquity and even from historic literature, that they would have been thinking about all these hundreds and up to thousands of rules and so forth that were forth. 
That's what they were thinking about. We think of the law of God, and rightly so. It's going to include, in its, in its smallest breakdown, certainly the Ten Commandments. A broader view, it would include the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Bible there. Even all of the Old Testament. But the word they interpreted to relate to this, this these, their most common use was this, this list of rules and regulations and so forth. You know, those old things, you could, what was it? You could, you could fry an egg on the Sabbath and eat it, but you had to kill the chicken that laid it and all that kind of stuff. Or you could, what was the one? You could gargle, but you couldn't swallow on the Sabbath. I mean, this was ridiculous. All different kinds of laws that they had laid out, lest they be accused of working, of laboring on the Sabbath. So it became, as we well know, a system of works that grew out of that. In Matthew 15, 6, Jesus had been talking to them about how they take the law of God and disregard it, and it turns into something that they can use for themselves. You may be familiar with what's referred to as korban, if you've looked at that in these scriptures that proceed here just had to do with putting aside money for your parents or so forth. They had a way of, I don't know every detail, but making it look like they were setting the money aside for the church or for the temple, and they would actually use it. And Christ called them on that. And he said, you, you, your, your motivation in that is so that you can get your hands on the money. That's what he was saying. It looks like you're doing it for your parents, but it's really so you can put your hands on the money. So he's dealing with things of the heart. That's what he's talking about. They didn't want to hear any of that. He follows in that in, in, in verse 6 of 15. He says, And by this you invalidate the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. That's where he goes with that when he's speaking of that. And then the verses to follow, he went on to say, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And I simply say to you that even in this day, we can be guilty of that. We can be guilty of that. God forbid that and keep that from happening. So when he talks about the law and the prophets, that indeed was a common term that most often was used to refer to the Hebrew Scriptures as a whole. But when they just said law, you had to be careful because they were talking about all those other little do's and don'ts that they had added. Yeah. Jesus would go on later in Matthew, and we'll get to it when we get up to chapter 12. <coughs> he, he starts in on some of these things. He starts talking about the Sabbath and laboring on the Sabbath. And later in chapter 15, he'll talk about ritual purity. He'll talk about those things. Um, he'll talk about tradition. And, you know, that's all before well, chapter 23 where, you know, you got the eight woes there where he really, I don't know, it's almost like he's losing patience with it, but he doesn't pull any punches by the time he gets up to chapter 23. It's where he starts calling them a brood of vipers and their whitewashed walls and their snakes and all this kind of thing. It's a serious thing to discard the law of God, the Word of God, for the sake of having it your own way, if you will, 
internalizing it like you think it should be, not believing that the Word of God is the best testimony of the, of the Word itself. In other words, if you're looking at a particular verse in this location, you don't want to just stop there. You literally, if you want to know what it means, you want to know how it's used in every area, right? You want to know how it's used. <coughs> what does it mean? What does it say? What does it mean? We keep going on with that particular mantra, and it's important that we do that because that keeps us on target. It keeps us focused upon the Word of God, which will never, ever pass away. Smartest thing we can do. Smartest thing we can do. So his words in these areas, and there'll be more as we look on, as we say, as we get into the body of this, he'll start using examples to bring all of this out. And again, he does the same thing in our life today. He puts us in situations, life creates situations that challenge us, that cause us to look at the validity of God's Word on our particular life in a particular situation. And it will not change. I trust that we'll always be sensitive to that and we'll always be thankful for that. Much of the scribes and Pharisees at this point as he's speaking, they consider Jesus' teaching really just an outright rejection of the law of Moses. They understand the law and the prophets, but it had been mediated by what these rabbis had been telling them. So Jesus had a lot to cut through there. Well, the law of God is preeminent because... Primarily, in this case, it was affirmed by the prophets. We want to look at that just for a minute. Now, God's revelation to the prophets was literally an extension, nothing more than an extension of His law. Remember, He came to fulfill. He came to add clarity. He came to provide, as He often did, uh, explanations or even uh, scenarios that would demonstrate the truth of the Word of God. He was the living embodiment of that. As it says, He was the Word made flesh. And He alone could do that, both in what He said and what He demonstrated. You might say that His words cause people to think. And it caused them to take you know, certain elements of the law and to place that Word into everyday circumstances to evaluate it. And literally to see how their life measured up. I mean, take the story of the Good Samaritan, for instance. A perfect example. A perfect example. The prophets expounded on the moral, on the judicial, and on the ceremonial law. That's what they did. Christ came to expand on that, to fulfill it. And He did, by example. The prophets addressed issues, all kinds of issues, as you well know, that Jesus spoke on later. Most of them are in Matthew. Idolatry, adultery, lying, stealing, uh, the way we respond and deal with our responsibilities to the government so forth, our, in, our individual lifestyles, things involving forgiveness, worship, all these things he talked about, all these things the law talked about. And the, the teaching of that day had, had begun to focus on the external. That's where it goes. Naturally, right? Wouldn't you think? That's where it's going to go. If it's not dealing with the inner person, if it's not dealing with the heart and mind, the soul, the commitment of a person, the understanding, 
then it's all about the external, what it looks like on the outside. Because that's the best we can do. And as we know, that's not enough. That's not near enough. Not even close. Well, ultimately the work of the prophet was quite simply to teach, to preach the law of God. (coughs) And that's what they said. And Christ came and fulfilled that. He said, I did not come to abolish it, but I did come to fulfill it. I hope that would get their attention. So what did he fulfill? That's a big question. In a very general way, what did he fulfill? Well, we look at three things. And the first one is not quite on target. It's true. But some believe that Jesus was claiming to have fulfilled the Old Testament simply by obeying its commands perfectly. Well, we know that that was true. That's what he did. But that's not really the context of what's being put forth here. In this particular gospel, the gospel of Matthew, you'll find this word fulfill. It's the word pleru, P-L-E-R-O-O. It's used in association with obedience really only once. And that would be in chapter 3, verse 15. Only once. So if we're comparing in the word here, that's what we find. He only only used it regarding obedience once, at least in Matthew. (coughs) Secondly, some believe that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets by faithfully interpreting the Old Testament and explaining it. Well, giving them God's original purpose behind the law. Well, that's a true statement. That's a true statement. But that's not the fullness of what's put forth here because, again, fulfill here, as he says, does not bear the precise sense elsewhere, either in Matthew or in any of the other Greek sources. It's just not used the same way. So if it's not, it's not the message that he's putting forth. So what is it? What is he talking about specifically when he talks about coming to fulfill? So you have those who argued that Jesus was literally describing himself as the fulfillment of Old Testament predictions. Now that may just seem simple, but that's actually what he's talking about. This is time to focus upon him, his advent, his fulfillment. And that's what it's about. And this view, of course, is supported by the best evidence. I mean, if you just look at the numbers, go back to this word fulfill, the Greek word uh, perlu. It's used 16 times in the Gospel of Matthew. And the information I looked at said that out of those 16 times, 12 times or 75%, it definitely refers to the fulfillment of prophecy. That's what he's talking about. So he's saying, without just saying it, what's he saying? I'm the Messiah, <laughs> okay? I'm the fulfillment of this. Yeah. And that's what he was. And that's the specific message that he puts forth. And when I wrote these three down, I was intrigued by these, and I wrote out here, word study. And I just wanted to remind us as a class, you know, when we're studying this, give attention to this kind of detail in your study. This is not wordy. I mean, I'm no... I don't read Greek. I'm no Greek scholar, but I enjoy looking at this material because this tells me what the Word said then and what it says now, specifically what Jesus was talking about. And that helps me understand why they hated Him so much. And what was happening in His society of that day, if He were talking about 
keeping the law or regarding the law, he would have no doubt used other verbs. We know this because he did this several times in other places in the Scripture. So that again adds validity to the use of this word here. He's talking about himself fulfilling prophecy, Old Testament prophecy. He fulfilled so much. He was that fulfillment. And it gives us an opportunity this morning to literally, we'll move ahead. We'll just move ahead in Matthew and look at these verses. I'm going to give them to you. And if you want to write these verses down where Matthew, Matthew alone, (coughs) made reference to Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, then now's your time to do it. I'll give you the verse that he's, that Matthew is quoting from, from the Old Testament, and I'll also give you the verse in Matthew where he talks about it. And uh, there's 19 of them here. This doesn't bore me. I hope it doesn't bore you. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an amazing thing. So look, number one, uh, of course, we would know that, you know, he, he spoke about Isaiah 7:14, where it said the Messiah would be born through a virgin. We know that. And that's Matthew uh, 1, 22 and 23. He quoted uh, from the verse in Micah, Micah 5, 2, where it says that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We find that in Matthew 2, 6. Hosea 11, 1 speaks that the Messiah Messiah would be called out of Egypt. Probably familiar with that verse. Matthew talks about that in Matthew 2.15. Jeremiah 31.15 foretold of the slaughter of the infants as Herod tried to dispatch him at his birth. And we find that in Matthew 2.18. Now I've double checked these, but I'm fallible so if you find one that's wrong or something let me know but i did double check it isaiah 43 speaks of a prophet in the wilderness who would come and would prepare the lord's coming again talking about his advent you'll find that in matthew 3 3 isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 Said, and we studied this, we went back and looked at this. It said that he would come to Galilee or the Galilee of the Gentiles. Do you remember that? Galilee of the Gentiles, back in chapter 4 of Matthew, beginning with verse 14 there. We, we studied that when we were in that section and looked at its importance. Isaiah 53 4 was quoted. He said that he would take our sicknesses and carry our infirmities like a lamb. You'll find that referred to in Matthew 8 17. Micah 7, 6, that's Micah 7, 6. He shares that Christ would, in his ministry, would turn family members one against another. Again, that's referred to in Matthew 10, 35 and 36. And then there's a, he just listed a plethora of, of them here from Isaiah. Well, he's got Isaiah 26, 19, 29, 18. 35, 5, 42, 18, 61, 1. And these are all verses that deal with sight being restored to the blind and the lame walking, the deaf hearing, dead raised, poor the gospel is preached. You know the passage. And of course, we find that not once but twice in Matthew. Matthew eleven five, 5, 
and Matthew 15, 31. It's overwhelming evidence already, and we're just halfway through. Exodus 23, 20 speaks of the messenger who would precede the coming of Messiah. That's also found in Malachi 3, 1. You've got two Old Testament references there. And of course, Matthew talks about it in chapter 11, verse 10. He's talking about John the Baptist. Then in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, he talks about Messiah not being loud, not being pretentious, talking about you know, his demeanor and so forth. Matthew comments on that in chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. Again, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 simply goes on about his teaching being misunderstood. That's kind of where we are right now, right? But the actual, the most specific verses from Matthew that deal with that are Matthew 13, chapter 13, verses 14 through 15. And Psalm 78, 2, it tells us that <clears throat> Messiah would be teaching in parables when he comes. And when we get up to Matthew chapter 13, verse 35, we'll begin seeing in that. They'll ask Jesus plainly there, why do you teach in parables? Verse 10. Isaiah chapter 29, 13. God's people would rebel against Him. They would teach false things. Matthew goes back to that in chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. Matthew 15, 8 and 9. He draws from those verses in Isaiah 29 there. Malachi 4 and 5 says that his coming would be preceded by an Elijah-like figure. An Elijah-like figure. That's Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13. And then again, Isaiah 62, 11, specifically predicted his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Matthew refers to that in chapter 21, verse 5. Just three more and we're done. Zechariah 13.7 tells us that his disciples would abandon him. Matthew 26.31, of course, records that. Matthew 26.31. And then again in Zechariah 11.13 said that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's Matthew 27.9. And then lastly, from Psalm 22 verses 1 and 2, and then also there in Psalm 22, considered uh, verses 6, 7, and 8, and verse 18, all together there. That's where it talks about that people would gamble for his garments, they would mock him, that the Father would forsake him, as it were, during his suffering on the cross, as Christ cried out. That's 19 examples multiple passages in some of those without a doubt. The Word validates that that's why He came. He came in fulfillment. Did I miss something? Did I miss something? The reference to Matthew on the last one? I failed to write down. Sorry. I'll get it to you next week. I sent out a group text. I can't do that. Yeah, I'm sorry. I did, I did not write that one down for some reason. But I'll get it to you. Matthew eleven thirteen says, For all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. Talking about John the Baptist. 
For all the law and the prophets prophesied until John the Baptist. We've often heard John referred to as the last of the Old Testament prophets, the first of the New Testament prophets. A unique role for him. And Christ himself sets the marker. All right? From that point on, Christ has come to fulfill that. And he changed it. I guess you could say he changed it. You know, didn't have to worship on the Sabbath anymore. They didn't have to do the sacrifices. The reason they didn't have to do it was because of what of, of the completeness of what Christ had done. And I've, there's a list of those here, and I, I find them interesting, particularly as you consider his fulfillment of the ceremonial law. We talk about his fulfillment of moral law, of judicial law. We find that. And then the ceremonial law. And he did those. It's not hard for us to understand Christ and his fulfillment of moral law. And we see all kinds of evidence. Obviously, throughout the New Testament, that's why he came. He paid our sin debt. I go to 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. (laughs) Enough said, right? That's like your John 3.16. But that's what he did. He fulfilled the moral law. He fulfilled the judicial law, the law of God. God required a sacrifice, right? He required a payment. had to be a perfect one. We couldn't pay it. So out of His grace and mercy, He paid it. <clears throat> Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of, of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him having forgiven us all our transgressions, and then in verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, talking about the law and all that was required, which was hostile to us. We couldn't do it. It created a standard we couldn't keep. And He has taken it out of the way, and I love this, having to the cross. That's what happened. That's what happened. He's our Savior And that's why we cling to Him as Lord. Because He and He alone has fulfilled it. He has paid the debt. This is our message to the world. To a world that knows, whether it wants to admit it or not, it cannot measure up. It can't. That's why it was so hard for the religious crowd to come to Christ because they thought they did measure up. And we've made this analogy before. But it was the prostitutes. It was the publicans. It was the tax collectors. It was the scourge of society who came, who was looking for hope, who had tried to fill that bucket every way they could and knew it was still empty. They came to Christ to see if there was any room for them. And there was good news there. Well, it doesn't take much, does it? But if you want to stand off and say, no, I know it all. I don't need that. I'm right where I need to be. You're not going to learn anything else. You're not. You're not going to open up your heart to God. And then with the ceremonial law, there are a number of analogies you can make. And I, <clears throat> I took these from a commentary. I want you to hear these. Because if you consider the, uh, the accoutrements, the, the, the utensils and all that was used in the ceremonial law, even the, the, uh, the acts themselves that were completed as a part of that ceremonial law, completed by the priest and so forth on behalf of the people, you'll find a number of things. There's eight here. In other words, there was a door to each of those. There was a door to the tabernacle. There was later a door to the temple, of course. But now what? Christ says, I'm the door. 
You come in through me now. In fact, he says, if you come any other way, what are you? Say it. A thief and a robber. <laughs> Sorry. I thought it was on the tip of your tongue there. You're a thief or a robber. There's only one way. There's only one mediator. They had the brazen altar, right? Now Christ is our altar. He's our altar. They had a, a lever, if you will. Is that pronounced right? For cleansing and for washing, for preparation. It, it typified being cleansed of our sins, being able to approach God sinlessly. But now what? Christ cleanses us from sin. We can't do that. No, no perfunctory thing, no functionary thing could ever serve that, as we said earlier. No external effort could do that. <coughs> it was a typology. That's all it was. It was a demonstration of what would later come, what would be required, and what later would be fulfilled in Christ at His coming, in His life, and in His ultimate sacrifice. They had many lamps in there, if you'll recall. But now, plainly, and John makes sure we understand this, Christ is the light. He's the light of the world. He's our light. We could say much more about that. We've alluded to that in other previous passages. They had bread there for part of the ceremonial observance, right? But the Bible tells us plainly that Christ is now the bread of life. And you can take that and compare it all the way back to when the manna fell from heaven to the children of Israel in the wilderness and they were provided for. They did not perish. Christ is the bread of life for us now. Just three more. They had incense. Do you know the purpose of the incense and the ceremonial observance? It was to carry the prayers of people upward. Do we need that now? No. The Bible says that Christ is our mediator. That He intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit knows, it says, better than we know ourselves what we need. It can take the things in our... Listen, this is wonderful. It can take the things in our heart and mind to pour out to God that we literally do not have words for. And the Holy Spirit knows and relates to those things, takes those things upward. Christ does that for us. He is our mediator. There was a veil. And of course, Christ's own body was the veil. It was broken. It was torn. The Bible says that when Christ died, what? the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. An interesting notation, don't you think? It wasn't man. This was a big tall thing. I forget the exact how, how it was. I think it's in, described in one of the Old Testament books in the, when they're talking about the temple. But it was torn not from the bottom up. That's not a picture of some man standing down here and ripping it upward. No, it's God doing the work. It's Him tearing it downward for us and then lastly of course the mercy seat what do we need to say about that Christ is now the mercy seat we go to him our savior our redeemer for mercy and it's sufficient why because all of that that was before every bit of it he says not one jot not one tittle we could we could interpret that as not not one dotting of the eye or crossing of the T, you might say. Not, none of that, he says, will ever pass away. That is absolutely phenomenal. That means that what we have, the Word of God, as it's written today, is from His hand. It's the truth. 
That, that, that's what aggravates the world. That's what aggravates the world. That's what we have. I think the question today is, do we believe that? Are we fully aware of the power of the Word of God? Not to make us rich and famous, not to take every problem that we have and do away with. Yes, there's an answer there for it. But that we might, as His church, as the body of Christ, make His presence, the reality of who He is, make that known to the world. It's going to be costly. It will become more costly, I dare say. Not, not a profit. It will become more costly before most of us depart from this world because he is the fulfillment. Lastly, Galatians 3.24 says plainly, Therefore, the law has become what? Our tutor, our teacher, if you will, to lead us to Christ. That's what it was about from the beginning. That's what it's about now. Why? Why was that necessary? Well, the rest of that verse says, so that we may be justified by faith. Amen.